Our guest today is Andrew Sachs. Andrew is a theoretical neuroscientist and is a Sir Henry Dale Fellow and Joint Group Leader at the Gatsby Computational Neuroscience Unit and Sainsbury Wellcome Centre at UCL. His research focuses on developing a mathematical toolkit for analyzing and describing phenomena in neuroscience. Currently, he is working on the theory of deep learning, which uses artificial neural network models and aims to apply this to explain how learning is instantiated in neural networks in the brain. Andrew, you were on the Brain Inspired podcast where you talked about how, you know, in an alternate universe, if the boundaries between scientific fields were drawn differently, then we could potentially have had, say, a department of intelligence and then uh, natural and artificial intelligence might not seem so different. Uh, so that got me thinking because uh, I realized that the boundaries between scientific fields are quite arbitrary and historical, like why don't we have a department of intelligence? So before we get deeper into this question, I wanted to ask, what do you think is intelligence? Ooh. I mean, I think that's a very complicated question with a complicated answer. I think it's many processes operating in concert that collectively give us the ability of flexible, um, yeah, basically flexible action that achieves necessary ends in the environment. Um, I don't know. I, I, I guess it's interesting. It's an interesting question because I find that I guess it's not one that I've been forced to consider much in my work because usually you can break off little sub pieces of it. And I guess the implicit hope is that when you sort of chip away at all of our intelligent abilities, eventually you'll you'll understand the whole, which may not be some unitary thing, right? So what do you think is the relationship between intelligence and learning? Do you think that learning is necessary for intelligence? Um, that might turn on definitions. So I could imagine a system that has uh, already been stocked sort of by hand with a bunch of prior knowledge and, um, you know, basically axioms it can use. And then it uses those to reason and do things. And that might be a system that we would call intelligent in some sense. But I certainly think that learning is shot through for us, like our own version of intelligence. And it seems to me, it's just essential. I mean, all of the abilities that we would call intelligent, we've learned, like playing chess, um, you know, driving a car. These are things we've never done in our evolutionary history and uh, we can do them effortlessly once you know, we've, we've been exposed to them. Yeah, we, you talked about these priors and axioms. So that could also come in the form of genetics through evolution, right? So would you consider like animals to be intelligent and or even more primitive life forms like slime molds? And I don't know if you know about them, but like how they're able to solve like the most efficient path through mazes and stuff. Would you consider that like a primitive form of intelligence? Uh, yeah, I would. Why not? Um, you know, that's, it's behavior that's adaptive and fits the niche and flexible to some um, variability in the environment. Um, it's clearly not the sort of intelligence we have. And there are lots of different kinds of intelligence that one might prize, like, you know, I guess linguistic ability would be one that's commonly cited. But um, 
yeah, I don't see any reason to 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 limit ourselves. Oh, and again, to think that intelligence is just one thing. There are lots of abilities we don't have that other animals have that seem quite clever to me. You know, I think there's examples of monkeys who can do uh, working memory, some subset of working memory tests, much better than humans can. And there's animals that, you know, bats can echolocate. So there's all kinds of ways of being intelligent that don't look like what we can do too. Yeah, I guess intelligence is quite specific and specialized for the different agents, depending on the information that they've been encoded with, the, 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 the environment that they've been brought up in. And so different species of animals could have uh, skill sets that are dependent on what their needs are. So for example, uh, squirrels would need to like say defend their territory, protect their food from competitors and know where to hide their food, etc. Um, but on the other hand, let's say like sheeps don't have to do all this. And so their intelligence is much more restricted to just social aspects and recognizing other sheep. And so intelligence could be very specialized to the agent depending on their needs. Which leads me to the next question, which is, do you think that there is some sort of universal computational principle underlying intelligence that we can study universally? So could it be that uh, intelligence, regardless of whether it's human intelligence or animal intelligence or artificial intelligence or even intelligent life outside of Earth, could it be that they all run on the same set of generalized computational principles, but simply implement it in different systems. Yeah, I mean, that does seem to me to be possible in, in the sense that, you know, if you're planning the shortest path as a slime mold or as a um, human, there's still certain facts about that computation and limits on that computational efficiency of that, for instance, that would, um, you know, no system could break through. Or sometimes the underlying system could look very different, but the mathematics that might provide a adequate description of it could be very similar. So control theory, you could imagine uh, lots of different kinds of quantities you want to control. Maybe for a bat, it's about you know distance to the wall of the cave, but to a slime mold, it's about something else entirely, but still the principles of feedback control would generalize. And I think there's also a case to be made that learning is, is one of these um, bedrock principles that, that, you know, there are statistical limits to what you can learn from data that no system is going to break through. Um, and there are various ways of doing learning that um, might have been, you know, incorporated into lots of different systems. Um, I, the only thing I would say is I don't think it needs to be a um, that there's a single way of being intelligent and that there's going to be one single theory of all of intelligence. But I just think that probably we'll see that there are lots of cases where little fragments of the mathematical formalisms we use will recur and be useful in different contexts. Mm. So I guess we'll talk about artificial general intelligence maybe a bit more later, but do you think that we could ever build AGI without first understanding the biological basis of human intelligence? Oh, I guess that probably could also turn on definitions, but I think my intuition would be that we, we probably could. I could imagine a future where we can 
implement AGI without understanding biological intelligence. And that's a lot easier given that there are companies like DeepMind out there that, you know, do some really impressive things um, that in a way that uh, might be very different from where it clearly surpasses the ability of humans, for instance. So um, yeah, I think, I think you could have a intelligence which is fairly general um, that doesn't operate on principles that human brains operate on. So like in the space of like solutions towards intelligence, we could just stumble upon a different solution and that might work as well, as well as, or even better than human intelligence. Yeah. yeah, I think in principle it's possible. Now, my personal bet is that it's going to be productive to look at the brain. I, you know, it's it's yeah. I mean, I think the standard way this gets uh, schematized in the field is um, we didn't build airplanes that flapped their wings. Uh, we just used principles of aerodynamics and jet engines, and it, that's a possibility. That could be the route we take to getting intelligent AI systems. But I also think. Uh, there are many times when biomimicry has helped. And if you look right now at AI, a lot of the systems they're using are in some sense inspired by brains. It's just one thing about that is I, I feel like when I say that a common response is like, oh, but the neural networks we're using in AI systems, they share nothing with the brain. I mean, it's so far away. Uh, it doesn't seem like that's actually a contribution of neuroscience. But to me, this is about timescales. Like actually, if you look in the history, the, the, the neuroscience insights, I mean, these were very basic things, but it was things like parallel processing, um, weighted connections going through nonlinear uh, single neurons connected together in a network. Th these principles are quite vague. They don't give you a ton of the specifics, but they really are what are built into a lot of these modern deep learning systems. And so, you know, I don't think we should discount that kind of inspiration that can come from biological systems. Um, it, it, it took 50 plus years to reduce it to engineering practice, but still it, it had a long shared history with neuroscience. Yeah, so we'll talk about deep learning um, much more later. So let's talk about theoretical neuroscience first. So we had uh, Philip Maney on the podcast and uh, we talked about mathematical biology, which is this field of uh, using mathematical modeling to explain biological, the mechanisms of biological phenomena. Is that similar to theoretical neuroscience? So like broadly speaking, what is theoretical neuroscience? I think it is similar. Uh, my goal is to come up with um, intelligible mathematical theories of the brain and the mind and the relationship between the two. And in the same way that a theoretical physicist would try to develop equations that describe how the physical world works, this is the attempt to do that for our inner world and the mind. And we are at the beginning of that project. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, there's a lot to be done. Yeah. And that to me is actually what makes it quite exciting because all of the basic concepts are open. How, how did you get interested in science and in particular this intersection between math and neuroscience? I came from engineering. So I was an electrical engineering student. I was really interested in robotics and AI. And I worked on the DARPA Grand Challenge, which was a self-driving car competition and had this, this is like typical, uh, 
undergrad <laughs> experience. So it's like, it's so hard to make a car drive itself. Why don't I just figure out how the brain works and then I can make the car do that, uh, which turns out was, was naive of me, but it got me started on, on neuroscience. And uh, I found eventually found myself drawn to that more and more and then switched over, yeah. So currently, what, do you, what would you say is the best route, like in terms of education to get into theoretical neuroscience? Uh, I think a lot of routes work or can work um, because you can't just directly study it, which is a shame, I think. Um, I think I think electrical engineering is not bad. Uh, it sounds like an odd choice, but it's sort of like a technical liberal arts degree. You, all of these um, pieces that don't fit elsewhere in the curriculum for whatever reason often go into electrical engineering, and in particular, the control theory and signals and systems side of things is very useful, I think, in understanding um, neural networks. But there, you know, math and physics would be two other good choices, and. I think neuroscience and psychology should be good choices, but the way they're taught right now is typically, um, it will be hard to get the mathematical uh, content. So you just have to make sure you're picking that up on the side. And just to say that, you know, neither of these routes is really great because also if you're coming from the engineering or computer science fields, for instance, you're gonna have to acquire all of the neuroscience. So it, it's not easy. I think it's just, Everyone has a very idiosyncratic path into this field right now. Yeah, we spoke a lot about this offline before. And what advice do you have for students? So like a lot of the students, including me, we did the more um, experimental psychology or life sciences undergrad. And now we realize that you, there isn't any quantitative skills in these undergrads. They don't teach it very well. So what advice do you have for students like us for learning like these quantitative skills on the side? Because math is a very hard thing to learn to self-study um, because you do need a lot of practice and just grinding through like worksheets which is very hard to do like on top of your undergrad degree so what advice do you have for students like us yeah uh, well i i agree it's tricky i think the first advice would be maybe just notify your programs that you you want this type of opportunity and even if that doesn't help you it might help future students but that yeah, may not help you. So what can you do? I think my only advice there would be uh, try to find some kind of a project that you know will require the mathematics that you want to learn. And then hopefully the project will draw you on to actually sit there and go through the problem sets. And, and it will serve as like a verification that you have learned those methods that you set out to. I mean, just as you said, I think it's easy to watch a lecture on something and feel like you've understood it uh, but then you sit down at, at the problem set and you know it's another matter to be able to do it yourself so there really is no substitute for practice and then you know maybe having a project is a way to sort of force you to to practice yeah is is theoretical neuroscience still a very new and niche field is that why there's like no good route into this field um, I think so. I think, I think people are worried that we don't have a curriculum to teach because we know little about the brain. And so maybe there's just nothing to teach. Now, I happen to believe that's not true. I think we can um, teach the mathematical tools that seem to be relevant and um, things like machine learning and things like nonlinear dynamical systems. These will 
be useful almost, I mean, it's hard to imagine a future where that's not going to be useful. And then you can teach the content that a standard neuroscience or psychology program would be exposing people to. I think that is a coherent program of study. It's just that people in that program should realize that what a lot of what they're learning, learning is going to change in the future because it's, it's still uncertain. But again, to me, that makes it exciting. And I also think um, for people in the field, they've they've studied physics or whatever else, and that path worked for them. So I think there's some amount of survivorship bias where there, there's a lot of people saying, no, actually the system's working all right. We don't need to teach these skills because you can go study physics first, but it's important to realize that, you know, people think of physics being very quantitative. That was a choice. We can make that choice for neuroscience psychology, at least as an optional track for the students who want it. And I think that would be, uh, really wonderful if, if we move to that um, world. Yeah, it'd be really nice to see that in the future. So from my understanding, there are theoretical neuroscientists who are more about building computational models and doing simulations. And there are others who are more focused on uh, getting theories that can be proven analytically so that you get some sort of like a mathematical truth. Um, is that accurate? And would you consider yourself to be more of the former or the latter? Yeah, I think that's accurate. I mean, the, the lines can blur and sometimes you use both methods in a project, but I definitely find myself drawn to the latter to um, more uh, sort of mathematical or sometimes it's not quite at the level of proofs, but something at the level of what a physicist would accept. And the, the, um, the flip side of studying mathematical methods is you usually have to study very simple models. Um, but I think that's a, a wonderful way of reasoning. It's kind of like you caricature the essential features of the situation and then see if that's enough to sort of build a usable theory. From these math equations, can we ever deduce a priori that these are the principles operating in the brain? Or do we always need to have some sort of experimental validation from the neuroscience side? I think, I think you need experimental validation. I think if you don't need experimental validation, then your theory is probably not very interesting because it, you know, yeah, it's an interesting comment, right? Like you need the Newton's laws are very specific, right? Like they have the constant of gravity, very specific, right? And the, the predictions for what's going to happen, you know, if one bowling ball rolled the wrong way, it would be, it would be over for Newton's law. So they're hyper-specific predictions. And that's what you want. You want a very um, a theory that makes very specific predictions. When we say that Newton's laws are general, what we mean is the same principles apply across space and time. We think, right, mostly. Um, so that um, that's what we're looking for in neuroscience too. You want a theory that could be very easily falsified, makes very surprising predictions, um, intricate predictions, but and, and it's accurate in a wide range of situations. So that's I think you know, the challenge for us. And there are a lot of theories that, as um, you may know, that basically some people have, like, think that they can describe anything that would, any data that would arise. And if, if that's true, then I think, you know, it's not really what we're after. Do you work on these experiments yourself as well, or is it usually more of a collaboration? It's usually a collaboration. I just, the, the range of skills one person would need. I did actually run one experiment in graduate school. Um, 
I've done a few psychology experiments as well. So some, some, which is great as a theorist to actually see it and appreciate the difficulties and all the intricacies, or at least some of the intricacies and uh, understand what's technically feasible. I think it's all really valuable, but um, ultimately, you know, there are, it's a separate skill set, And so I think team science is really important. Can you give us a sense of what these experiments actually look like? So how do you go from, so where, did, where do you get like the mathematical equations from and how does that give predictions that we could test in the lab? Yeah, so you basically write down a list of assumptions. You say, maybe you think the brain network that's involved is organized into a series of brain areas. This would be like a deep network where you have layered processing. And you make assumptions about what each neuron can do. Maybe it's taking a weighted sum of its presynaptic neurons activities through these synaptic weights. And then you specify how you think it might be learning. Maybe you think it's gradient descent. And then you know, after that, you kind of turn the mathematical crank and you can get predictions out for how those synaptic strengths throughout this network would change if you train um, an animal on a given task. So there's a very much specific predictions arising under the assumption that the brain network has these properties. And that is essentially what the empirical test is testing. Is that actually, are those axioms reasonable for empirically adequate for describing this behavior? Um, and so, you know, the resulting experiment, for instance, might be you train a mouse to look at a visual computer display and decide if an object is of one class or another class, for instance. Um, and then you measure the neural activity throughout the uh, visual cortices and you see how the neurons are changing their tuning properties to get better at that task. That would be one example. Right, and if we see that the, the synaptic changes in the actual mouse corresponds to what was predicted in the equations, we would know that it's a similar or likely to be the same learning rule? Yeah, I mean, I guess you have to be a little careful because you can't really know that it's the same learning rule. What you can say is that this learning rule is not obviously wrong yet, <laughs> right? So it's like this idea of it survived a falsification attempt is what, what you might say. Um, and one experiment probably won't give us much confidence, but if there start to be lots of experiments where the predictions come out, then yeah, then you can start using that model now, the, the mathematical model as a stand-in in your calculations, you can make predictions for, well, what, what if I change the task? Um, what if I switch to an animal that has a much deeper series of layers that are involved in the task or a shallower series of layers? Um, what would I expect to change? So, I mean, that, that would be wonderful if we got to that point. Just as with Newton's laws, you know, you, you might do an experiment and say, look, a bowling ball falls just as fast as a feather in a vacuum. Um, and then you do lots of other similar experiments and eventually you say, you know what, these really seem to work across a wide range of settings and that's, that's what we're after. Yeah. Is it hard finding these experimental neuroscientists to test your theories? I think I had pretty good luck. I mean, um, it's, they're, they're often hard experiments. So, um, you know, the, it's just, Getting experiments that can be completed in the time frame of a PhD is a bit tricky, and um, you know, communicating why that this particular experiment is theoretically interesting is takes a while. But yeah, I think we've had, I think a lot of, 
the field right now feels like we're in a situation where we have tons of data, these amazing new tools, we can record, uh, you know, tens of thousands plus neurons uh, now and um, using neuropixel probes and other things, and we have optogenetics. So we have these amazing experimental tools. And now I think the task is to connect it back to theory. So that's, yeah, I think there's a lot of interest in that. Mm. What do you think is currently holding theoretical neuroscience back right now? So is it that we need more theories first, or do you think that we need much more work on the experimental validation side because there are too many untested theories? Um, or, do you, or is it simply just we need further advances in technology first? Um, it might be a little early to, well, yeah, it probably is a little early to know for sure, but I guess if I had to guess, um, I think we have interesting candidate theories that deserve an experimental test, and we have experimental methods capable of doing the test, and so we're in the situation we just have to do it now. Um, and part of that is theorists taking their theories very seriously. So one of the issues that you can get into is um, you make a prediction, but you're like not fully behind it. So you could sort of say, well, if it didn't come out that way, then maybe you could change around my model a little bit and also get something that, that comes out. So, you know, I, it would be great if we started really just taking these models, predictions extremely seriously and saying, if it's falsified, it's falsified. And then hopefully you start getting this feedback loop going. Now I'm being a little glib, you know, it's always caveats to falsification, but it's something closer to that. Um, I think that would be useful. Yeah, let's talk about deep learning then. Very briefly, what is a neural network and uh, does it have anything to do with biological neurons? Yeah, well, it's interesting that the words neural network now kind of means artificial neural network. I think implicit in that question. So artificial neural network is um, a device that computes some function of its input essentially. And the way that that function is represented is uh, you have a bunch of nodes, which you can think of as neurons, and they are connected to other nodes. And each of those connections has some uh, weight or strength. And that's those connections is where the knowledge of the network resides. So the learning rules in these artificial neural networks typically uh, adjust the weighted connections between neurons to get the input-output map to be what you're uh, aiming for it to be. Um, and this is, if it has anything to do with the brain, it's clearly at an intermediate level of description because if you just pulled out one of these artificial neurons, uh, it's way simpler than a real neuron. Real neurons have dendritic branches. They look like little trees. You know, they've got uh, axons that go out, they fire spikes. Usually in artificial neural networks, you just sort of get a, a, a number out. So it's like an average firing rate or something. So it's at an intermediate level of description, but I, I think that um, it's too easy to just say, well, they have nothing to do with the brain then because they don't include all those details. Uh, in the same way that Newton's laws, you know, if you think of dropping a bowling ball in a feather, I didn't need to tell you what color the feather was. I didn't need to tell you what color the bowling ball was. It wasn't relevant. And that's actually really important. A theory needs to tell you what's not important to the phenomenon under study. And so theories of the brain that are based on these artificial neural networks are, are making that, uh, making some choices there. They're saying, you know what? I don't think 
that for this particular type of behavior, uh, the details of the dendritic arbor are crucial. And that's an empirical question. It could be wrong, um, but it also might be productive. And there's lots of cases where these artificial neural networks for like systems level computations, where it's sort of big brain areas computing, they seem to align to some extent with the representations we see in the brain. So the hope there is that we could strip away the complexities in the biological neural networks and sort of just capture the essence of what you really need to get that sort of ability. Yeah. And it's really important that that last bit of what you need to get that ability, right? So when I'm, I'm not, this is not to say that it's not really important to understand dendrites and spiking and all of these other processes that are going on in the brain. They just might be relevant to other kinds of phenomena. So if all you care about is visual object recognition, then maybe that's not important. We don't know yet, but maybe that's not important. And um, so the explanation can be suited to what you're trying to explain. And then I think pruning out all the irrelevant details is what makes it intelligible for a human. And so that's why it's valuable. You know, the, the gas laws in physics, it's great to know that all I need to think about is pressure, volume, atomic number, and temperature, and nothing else, right? That's actually super useful uh, and makes it intelligible. Was it surprising to you at all that when you first learned that, like that studying how these neural networks work, like deep learning, that this can tell us anything about the principles of learning in the brain? Or was it obvious that because, you know, the, it looks the, the architecture is relatively similar, that there must be something to be learned from there about the brain? Oh, yeah, no, it still surprises me. I, it's like, yeah, every few months, you, you, you try some neural network on some new task, and then the representations that pop out happen to look like what you record in the brain. I mean, it's just still completely, almost unbelievable to me. Um, which is why it's tempting to think like, well, maybe we're on the right track. Um, we'll have to see. But yeah, I, I think it's 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 really remarkable that so often you train an artificial network on a task, and then you go look in fMRI or other measures, and like there's what appears to be a very similar representation sitting in uh, the brain somewhere. So yeah, I still don't quite know how to interpret that, but it's certainly intriguing yeah yeah and when i train my neural networks as well and i see that it reproduces the data and it's so weird that that you're coding that you're coding up the system on your computer with lines of code and that's that that's telling you something oh, it's it's converged on the same solution as the neural networks in your brain which is just crazy yeah and you can analyze and learn stuff from the computer about the brain, which seems totally separate. Yeah, and some of these things seem so, I don't know, like the model teaches, teaches you things. It's, maybe, maybe it shows that some particular detail of the task is really important to what the representation is. And, um, you know, you, you sort of learn that fact from studying the model. So it's, it's pretty amazing to see these things emerge and then especially when you go into the empirical literature and find that that's also what was happening in the brain yeah it's, it's super compelling yeah do you think that it's th these are some sort of universal fundamental like computational principles of learning that we're we're sort of poking at with these neural networks yeah it's not clear to me how universal um 
it is because there may be constraints that are relevant to the learning process that uh, a human brain has that a computer system would not have. As one simple example, suppose I ask you to um, have this conversation with me and simultaneously compute an integral. Um, I wouldn't be able to do it anyway. Maybe you can, but I, I could, definitely could not do those two things simultaneously. Now, a computer could very easily. Worst case, it could basically like copy its whole brain, right? You copy your whole brain, have two independent brains. One does the integral, one carries on the conversation. You can do that. So that copy operation is something that's used all over computer science for uh, multiprocessing, but it's not clear that a human brain can do, can do that. And so, you know, it, that puts certain constraints on the learning process if you're not allowed essentially to copy these weights across space or copy learning updates across space. Um, and that kind of constraint doesn't necessarily seem universal to me. Um, in terms of using deep learning to understand principles of the brain, is this approach uh, still quite a niche approach or is it like gaining popularity? I think it's gaining popularity. I don't know. Yeah, I, I think it's probably uh, reasonably influential at this point, but the empirical base for it is still very shaky. So, you know, these, these are theories in need of being tested in my view. And um, it, they're promising in part because if they turned out to be empirically adequate, then you know, there's so much interest in AI right now in these methods that can do amazing things. And so um, it could lead to some great advances in our understanding of neuroscience if the link is empirically valid, but I think it's still up in the air. There's one small comment on that. There's deep networks and there's deep learning. So a lot of the tests that are out there, they show that representations in deep networks match up with things that you see in the brain, but there's less work that's specifically focused on learning, I would say, that's really distinctive of the learning mechanism working in the same way, which would be uh, like a, a deeper test of the similarities, I think. Mm. Has deep learning taught us anything about the brain yet, or are we still on the stage where we're trying to establish the empirical link between the two systems? Hmm. Do you have any examples of um, how work on like deep learning on neural networks has shown that, uh, or has, has given us any insights about how neural networks in the brain works? Yeah, it's a really good question. I, um, well, I wonder if you would count this. So. I mean, in terms of did it teach us things about the brain? Yeah, I would think you'd have to say yes to that. I'm thinking of Jim DiCarlo's work um, and Daniel Yemens and others, where they predict the activity of neurons in your visual processing pathways using deep networks. So those are the best predictive models that we currently have for how those neurons respond. And so in that sense, they do constitute you know, we don't have we don't have something better for describing how those neurons work. Now, the description is this black box. It's a neural network, so it's not necessarily the most intelligible description, but it's enormously useful for engineering purposes, right? Because you can, instead of having to do experiments on a brain, you can do experiments on this neural network. As one example of that, I think it was, um, I want to say Andrea, Andreas Tolius at um, Baylor, who um, used one of these models and said, I'm going to optimize the stimulus to maximally activate a neuron. 
And so he takes his deep neural network model, he figures out what stimulus should activate the neuron the most, and then indeed that is the stimulus that evokes way more activity than anything else. So that's a great prediction, um, validated prediction that you know this deep network was doing a good job of um, capturing the transformation from in input images to neural responses. Was that the one where they showed that like the first layers of the deep neural network corresponds to V1 and basically activity patterns in uh, each layer of the deep neural network corresponds to each layer of the visual processing pathway? Um, yeah, so th that's, that's the sort of, um, I think there have been lots of similar work of that type going back to DiCarlo and others, but there's also now a few papers showing that you can use this causally. So once you've got the model, you can, you can go back and use the model to design better stimuli to show to your neuron to get it to activate even more. So it's a more stringent test because it's not just predicting on already collected data, it's actually making a prediction about what's gonna happen in the future. And that came out um, uh, pretty well. So yeah, that's certainly promising. But it's worth saying that you know, the, the principles of deep learning could have much, much wider ramifications than um, being able to predict single neuron activities. And um, there, there, I think there have been a lot of cases where the results are very suggestive and um, interesting relationships are out there and have been discovered in psychology, but still it's not fully clear um, where the empirical you know, evidence will line up at this point. You mentioned that you like working with the mathematical equations, which means that you need to work with simple systems. So I know that you like working with linear neural networks. So what does it mean for a neural network to be linear or nonlinear? Yeah, so it means it's about the um, the active the, the function that transforms from the input coming into a neuron to the firing rate going out. And so if that function is linear, meaning just like a line, so if it gets more input, it just fires more. If it gets less input, it fires less. And it uh, perfectly, you know, balanced amount, then it's linear. And um, if it's not, if there's some curved relationship there, then it's nonlinear. And that's quite significant computationally because when you cascade a bunch of these linear neurons together, then the, uh, you can always sort of collapse it back to just essentially one neuron with carefully adjusted weights. So it can't, when you add additional neurons, you add additional layers, you can't compute something fundamentally different. Um, whereas in the nonlinear network, it can. So it's definitely a restricted model. So because of how, if we have a nonlinear activation function, you can't combine them into one function. And so that increases the representational power of the network. Exactly, yeah. Right, okay. So, so to you, why are linear neural networks such good model systems? Well, they're only a good model systems for certain tasks. And in particular, I think they're valuable if you're interested in learning dynamics and you want to understand how the depth of a network, for instance, impacts how long it's going to take to train or what representations it's going to end up with. And, and there, the deep linear networks are actually quite interesting because um, you may not need additional representational power from depth. You may just need additional interesting learning dynamics from depth, and it turns out that they already have those. So when did you realize that these linear neural networks, that they weren't trivial to, to, to work on? 
Oh, uh, yeah. I think it was like year three of my PhD or something. So it didn't really have a clear project by that point. I had done some smaller projects. And then I was interested in human semantic development, how infants learn about concepts in their world. And Jay McClellan, my supervisor, had a really beautiful model of this in simulation. And I was trying to figure out how to do mathematical analysis of it. And I, I, yeah, I don't know why, but one time I just tried it with no nonlinearities and it showed all of the same behavior. <laughs> I was like quite thrilled because it was clear that that would let us make some progress. Um, it took a while to understand why, you know, was, I think if you look at the history of the field, the AI went through a bunch of winters. And one of those winters was exactly the fact that they were using these shallow linear networks to try to compute functions that they just couldn't possibly compute. And so the way out of that winter was discovering deep networks with nonlinearities. And so it's kind of like baked into everyone's mind that if it's not nonlinear, it's trivial. And for a lot of cases, that's true, but turns out for learning dynamics, it's not true. It can still be very complicated once it's deep, um, even though the overall input-output map could be rewritten as a shallow network. Well, so it was completely by chance that you stumbled upon this, this entire new, uh, new approach to looking into the, how a neural network works. Yeah, it, it felt like pulling on a thread you know, you, you just don't know how long it's going to be. And it just kept unraveling and there was more there and it got more and more interesting. And uh, yeah, here I am still working on it quite a while later. I, I mean, again, they're not good for all purposes, but it's a surprisingly complicated model. Um, and there's still many things we don't know about it. If, you, if we can't figure out how those deep linear networks work, then, you know, presumably it's only going to be harder to do the nonlinear ones. So it's also a useful starting point. Do you have any intuition for uh, why is it that the representational power of linear neural networks aren't, um, aren't as good as nonlinear neural networks, but the learning dynamics is the same? Yeah. Um, so there's a, they're basically a quadrant that you have to think of. You can have a network that's either shallow or deep meaning if it's deep, it just means there's multiple stages of sequential signal processing. And then it can be linear or nonlinear. And so there are these four quadrants. And the representational power breaks down on whether it's linear or nonlinear. So even a shallow linear, uh, uh, sorry, a shallow nonlinear network will be able to solve the XOR task. So that's, for instance, if you've heard of support vector machines, the very you know, standard machine learning technique, it's shallow, considered shallow, but um, it can solve that task. Whereas the learning dynamics break down along depth. And that's really a difference between a convex, sorry, this gets a little technical, but it's the difference between a convex optimization problem and a non-convex one. I think the essence of it is that um, in the shallow network, there's only one way to solve it. Uh, you have every weight has to take some particular value, and and that's the only way to implement the input output function. Input output function, but in a deep network, you actually always have infinite ways to solve it, pretty much, uh, in a deep linear network anyway, because for instance, you can make the weight at one layer stronger and the weight at the next layer weaker to compensate, and those symmetries make the learning problem much more difficult. 
do you think that um there would ever become like that we would ever get like a grand unified theory of deep neural networks is there a hope that we could come up with a set of equations such that you know if we know the structure of the data the architecture of the network and the algorithm that the network is using that we simply put these into some equations and then output things like training speed internal representations and how well it generalizes yeah wouldn't it be great i think it's probably not going to happen and I, I guess i view the situation the best case situation is like newton's laws where even with newton's laws there are lots of specific problems that we can solve and get insight into um, but at the end of the day the the general unified equations just are newton's laws and if your system's complex enough maybe you wind up simulating those on a computer right and it doesn't have to be very complex before that's our only option in fact and so i think the situation will be the same with neural networks there'll be lots of cases where we can get insight into how they work in restricted regions of their operative space. But ultimately, I mean, arguably, we for, for these networks, we already have the universal law. It's just gradient ascent. And then you'd have to solve it with um, you know, simulation often. Yeah, it's so interesting that we came up, we invented these neural networks, and then we weren't able to explain it ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't take much to make things so complicated we just can't um, can't understand them and that's why I think you know for science intelligibility is so important and um, coming up with the right toy models that you can actually get some partial insight into these complex systems that's that's really valuable I mean it's a huge huge enterprise in physics right and I think it could also be really valuable in, in neuroscience so you mentioned how you know neuro, uh, biological neural networks have like dendrites and axons and all these spikes and everything. Uh, what to you is the most interesting difference between artificial neural networks um, and the brain? And do you think that neural networks could be more powerful if we incorporated more biological aspects of actual neurons? Mm. Well, on that second point, uh, I think if you incorporate more biological detail, okay, I mean, again, I think it basically is going to turn on definitions because we already know that a current neural network of this artificial variety is Turing complete. So if you wanted to, worst case, you could build a simulator of a neuron with complex dendrites and so on and implement the function that you were going to implement with the more complex network. So in principle, um, I don't think adding dendrites is obviously going to buy you something. But in practice, it could be completely different. It could be that it's very valuable to add dendrites for certain structure, and maybe spikes help with certain computations. Uh, so far, though, I'd say we haven't really seen that. And um, one of the pieces of evidence that I think is quite interesting is a single neuron is so complex that some people think it's an entire neural network. Uh, artificial neural network with all those nonlinearities, and they just map it differently. So the dendrites are these interior nodes and so on. Um, and that would mean a single neuron could compute something that one of our artificial deep networks could. If that were true, then you might expect that a single neuron could implement, for instance, the entire mapping from input pixels to output object class. And 
In that case, why would we have all these layers of our visual cortex? And why do we see this slow progression across layers? So in my view, there's actually empirical reason to believe that um, that nonlinearity is apparently not harnessable by the brain's learning mechanisms because we see intermediate representations that look like the representations you need if you couldn't do all of this nonlinear computation in a single neuron. So not harnessable in the sense that the information is there, but the brain uh, isn't able to use it. Yeah, isn't able to adjust those parameters and put it together into a learned system that could implement this whole transformation in one step, right? And again, the, the idea being, if one neuron could do the whole transformation, then basically in V1, <laughs> you would think you could skip to the end of your of your deep network, right? We don't see that. And that's, I think that's quite a significant point. You know, the, the, the implicit assumption built into a lot of these deep networks is that the neural activation function, the mapping from input to output firing rate is fairly simple, something like a rectified, rectified linear function or something like that. And that means there's only so much one layer can do. And that means you need lots of layers that slowly transform from input to output. And that's exactly what we see in the brain. Right. Do you think that we're still underestimating deep learning in terms of its capabilities? And how far do you think neural networks will take us in terms of artificial general intelligence? Um, yeah, I guess, again, it probably depends on definitions. So um, I think uh, it seems clear to me that we're going to need new concepts and new ideas to build systems that do everything we want them to do. I I'm interpreting your question as saying, if you just take our current learning systems and make them 100 times bigger, train them with 100 times more data, would they um, become intelligent? And I I'm skeptical of that. I think they've probably become extremely impressive in a lot of ways, like we have some examples of, but I don't think it would exhaust the capabilities that, that humans have. Um, but you know, I think there are a lot of edge cases in adjudicating these things. Like I think really that question, what you're asking is what's the fastest route for the enterprise of science to reach an intelligent agent? Um, and there, I think, you know, the deep networks probably are only one step along a longer path would be my guess. Do you think we will be getting artificial general intelligence within your lifetime? Hmm. Oh man, I have no idea. I think that the thing about it is it seems like there's two options. It could be there's a fairly low number of computational principles that get reused across the brain. We don't know what they are. But if we discovered them, then maybe we'd solve huge swaths of the problem very rapidly. The alternative situation could be that actually there's a lot of um, individual area specific variation that's been built up over millennia. And if that's the case, it could be a long slog. So I just feel very uncertain as to exactly when uh, we're gonna have something that's worth calling AGI, but um, yeah, I guess I'll go with optimism. I think it'll happen in my lifetime. We might have a step function anytime and we'll just, we'll just reach it really quickly. Yeah, exactly. So your work involves applying mathematical, these mathematical theories to um, processes in like neuroscience. So in your work, do you feel like you are discovering new math or do you feel like you are 
inventing these equations on the spot. So what are your thoughts on the debate of whether math is discovered or invented? I don't know much about it. So I'm sure whatever I'm saying is gonna be very um, naive to, to people who know more about it. But, um, well, I guess one thing to say is, you know, I, I'm rarely advancing the mathematical techniques. It's more like applying them to new models. So, you know, I think a practicing mathematician might just say, I, I'm, I'm neither discovering nor inventing, <laughs> I'm applying, but, um, I definitely feel that these models, you know, I discover things by examining them. Um, you know, what's invented are, I guess it seems to me, the axioms that I put in, but then all of these beautiful consequences flow out of it. Oftentimes it totally takes me by surprise what's what's come from it. And it does feel like it was sitting there just waiting to be uncovered. But uh, yeah, those are my naive thoughts. <laughs> Cool. So last question is, what advice do you have for young scientists? Um, I think read widely. I mean, I guess that's common advice, but I think it's so important. You know, you have to get a bird's eye view of the field until you, you keep reading, until you get to the point where you feel like each new paper isn't actually changing your thinking that much and you've sort of got a good bird's eye picture and you can easily slot these things in. And the most important thing there is figuring out what you think is important in the first place. And then, you know, there's lots of research projects you could do. Why not aim at the ones that seem to you to be most significant? Um, and I, I, yeah, I think um, that's, that's, I guess, my advice and I, but I, I'm a problem, I tend to be a problem driven person. So, you know, I, I have a certain problem I want to find, and then I find the methods required to, that seem to be required to solve it. But I do think there's another successful pathway, which is just get really good at one method and then see what you can do with it. And so both of those work very well. But uh, yeah, I like to lead with the problem. Yeah, it's so important to have like a, a, a accurate big picture view, like of the field. And especially with like theoretical neuroscience, such an interdisciplinary field, so many things from other expertise could have potential implications and uses in, in neuroscience that nobody ever thought of before. And it's important to, to, to have like expertise in different areas to like be able to make these connections in the first place. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, so Andrew, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's an honor to have you here. Thanks for having me.